If you have your Bibles, open them to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. And while you're turning there, I just want to give a brief recap of where we have been over the last few weeks. Uh, we've been in our sermon series onward, and we've been talking about missions. Specifically, how we as a church can be on mission and what that looks like for us. And I hope, and I say this every week, and I'm going to say it again, I hope that each and every one of you don't, that you don't just see this as a sermon series that we're going through at the church, but that we consider these things throughout the week. That we as a church body go through this and we ask the tough questions of what is our mission and how can we live that out. And so we, we've been looking uh, for the first four weeks at the fact that God is on mission to save the lost. We need to join Him. And then last week, we looked at a very practical thing. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing now. We're in, the, we're in the final home stretch here. And we're just looking at how can we practically live this out. Last week, we looked at the fact that we can't be silent. And then this week, we're going to see that we must serve people with acts of compassion. Serve people with acts of compassion. And so the question that we're going to answer this morning is this, should we share the gospel or should we serve people with acts of compassion, mercy ministry? And in our, in our church culture today, we've kind of said that we need to do either or. You can serve people, they say, but then you don't share the gospel with them. It's all about serving. And then on the other side, you have the fundamentalists saying, well, no, it's not really about serving, but it's all about sharing the gospel. Well, which is it? The Bible says both. The Bible says you've got to do both. The Bible says if you neglect one or the other, you've gone astray. And so we need to be a church people that, that do both of those things. And what we're going to see in this passage is, is that true worship, true religion, true devotion is living out the gospel in a tangible way. Not up in the clouds, in a very tangible way by serving those in need. By serving those in need. So if you would please stand with me as we hear the words of the prophet Isaiah, words from our God. This is what he says. Cry aloud. Don't hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. We, why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down like, like his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? 
Isn't this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, then, shall your light break forth like the dawn, and all your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from, the, from their midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then you, your light will rise out of the darkness and your gloom will be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters don't fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I'm reminded this morning that this is Your Word, not mine. And Lord, there are things in Your Word that are incredibly inconvenient, if we're honest. There are things in Your Word that if it were just left up to me, I would never preach. But Lord, Your Word balances us. It makes us not just people who proclaim, it makes us people who serve. Lord, convict us. Lord, would You convict us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We see several points in this passage, and the first one that we're going to see is that God despises empty religion. God despises empty religion. This is not just something that Isaiah brings up here in, in, in chapter 58, but Isaiah actually starts off his book of prophecy with this all the way back in chapter 1. Isaiah basically tells his people, he says, or God tells his people, I've had enough of your fast. I've had enough of, of your offerings. I've had enough of your worship. Because you don't go and care for the widow. You don't go and care for the orphan. He just calls it empty religion. And, and he picks up here and God is telling Isaiah to tell the people of their sins. Notice he says there in verse 1, to cry aloud. Literally, to cry from the throat. We might say today, to, to cry out from the diaphragm. You know, push it out, project your voice, let yourself be heard, Isaiah. He says, don't hold anything back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Why does God, why is, it, why is He so passionate about Isaiah declaring loudly the people's sin? It's because God desires to heal them. God desires to heal them. But before he can heal, listen, this is painful. Before he can heal, he must cut. Before he can heal them, he's got to cut them. God loves them too much to let their sin just go under the radar. 
And church, let me tell you, God loves us too much to let us be consumed with the sin of idleness. He loves us too much. And so, just like Isaiah, He's going to confront us. He's going to confront us. And as we see this this play out in the first five verses there, God despising empty religion, we see four ironies of the people. We see four ironies. And the first one that we see there is the people seek God daily, but they don't follow Him. There in verse 2. They seek Him daily, but they don't follow what He says. They seek Him outwardly, but He says they don't have righteousness. They don't seek His instruction, His judgment. The second irony of the people is that they outwardly desire God, but they seek after themselves. They say, God, don't you see our devotion? God, don't you see our fasting? Don't you see our worship? And God answers them and says, when you fast, you don't even seek me. When you fast, you're going after your own pleasure. Outwardly, they're saying, we want to worship, but inwardly, they're saying, I'm consumed with myself. The third irony is that the people worship the God of peace, but they quarrel among themselves. They quarrel among themselves. And let me tell you, genuine worship brings about peace. True religion brings peace. Because our God is a peacemaking God. And that is our, that's the gospel that we believe, that we hold to. It's a gospel of peace. That we were enemies of God, but God has made peace with us and brought us near. And when we truly understand the peace of God and how great a distance He spanned, there's no place for the worshipers of God to be quarreling. The fourth irony that he says here is the people claim they yearn for God's presence. Lord, we want to be near You. Lord, we want to worship You. But their devotion is only a facade. It's just a little brick wall on the outside. Notice he, he says here, just very ironically, about the people there in, in verse 5. He says that they humble themselves. It's such a fast that I choose a day for him to humble himself. He's talking about just this external act of humbling oneself, of bowing down, bowing the knee, but the heart not being there with it. He talks about them humbling themselves. He talks about to, to bow their heads like a reed. When you think about a swamp, you know, the cattails out there, when the wind blows, they just bow down. There's no mind to it, there's no heart to it. That's just what they do. He says, sackcloth and ashes. The people have an outward appearance of repentance, but inwardly their hearts are far from God. I wonder how much these ironies can be said about us. About you and I. I wonder how much that it can be said about us that we are worshiping God. We're going through the motions of worship. Going through the motions of religion. But inwardly, our heart does not seek God. Inwardly, our heart is far from Him. Are we in our hearts seeking after God or are we in our hearts seeking after ourselves? But maybe a better question is how does God measure the genuineness of our heart? How do we know the difference? How do we know where our heart is? How does God measure that? Well, as we're going to see in the next couple of verses, He looks, listen, He looks at how we serve other people. 
And the second thing that we see here is that true religion serves other people in need. God's saying, hey, your religion is empty. It's phony. It's just a facade. But what I really want you to do is this. And He, he unpacks for us some things. And I just want to say, He's going to unpack for us six ways that we can serve other people. And we need to realize that these avenues of mercy ministry that He calls us to are both for us as a church and for us as individuals. Okay? It's not just for individuals to do, but for the church. Because if, if, if just one or two people try to fulfill what He's saying here, we're going to burn out. If just one or two are going and trying to serve other people and the church isn't in it and the church isn't behind it, then those people are going to burn out and nothing's going to happen. But the opposite is also true. Not only is it not just for individuals, but for the church. It's not just for the church, but for individuals. Because the church, listen, is made up of individuals. And the church is only going to do as much as we as individuals do. So don't just hear these, these things as Isaiah saying, well, the church needs to do this, the church needs to do that. No, this is we as individuals of the church, as members of the church, need to be about these things. And the, the, as he unpacks these six things, the first one that he tells is we need to free the oppressed. We need to free the oppressed. There in verse 6, he's very emphatic about that. Is, it, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Who are the oppressed? Who are those under bondage? Well, in the Bible, we see widows, we see orphans, we see people who, are, who can't stick up for themselves, people who are being abused by those in power. But for us today, for us today, if we were to obey this, it would look like us when we see injustice, we seek to end it. When we see injustice, we seek to end it. This means that when we see sexual trafficking, sex trafficking, women being taken captive by this, and, and the oppressor is telling them there's no way out, this is all that there is for you, we oppose it. And we do everything in our power to end it. This means that when we see abortion which is the ultimate trampling and abuse of someone who is defenseless, that we stand against it and we do everything in our power to end it. Freeing the oppressed means that when we see someone who is physically or sexually abused and assaulted, that we do everything in our power to end it and stand against it. The church is a safe place for those who are vulnerable whether it's abuse in general by people in power, we stand against it. We stand against the rulers. We stand against people who abuse other people. And we do everything in our power to end it. Next, he says that we should feed the hungry. We should feed the hungry. But notice what he says here. Literally, when he, when he tells us uh, to share your bread. He's talking about literally to, to break bread for the hungry. Why is this important? Because feeding the hungry is more than writing a check for the money to go towards feeding people. 
What, what Isaiah has in mind here is, is personal. It's not just me impersonally writing a check and hoping that they, it goes to feed the hungry, but it is me actively, myself, going and feeding people. That means that, that me actively going and inviting people in my home for Thanksgiving, people that are far from God, people that are, are poor, people that don't have anything to eat, they're coming to my house on Thanksgiving. They're coming to your house on Thanksgiving and Christmas. It means that our WMU who is, who is working tirelessly in their soup ministry to, to provide people in our community with food, that means that we got to get behind things like that. We don't just write money to the WMU to help them with their soup ministry, but that means, hey, we got to get involved in that. We need to personally take responsibility for feeding the hungry. Next he says that we should serve the poor or the homeless. And again, notice that it's not from a distance, but he says, bring them into your house. Bring them into your house. Whether the poor is an orphan or a foster child, bring them into your house. Whether it's a single mother who has nowhere else to go, or maybe it's a mother who is almost a mother, maybe considering abortion, has nowhere else to go, we need to bring them into our houses and practice hospitality. Maybe it's a kid with a bad home life. Maybe it's, it's somebody, their, their parents, uh, they're, they're coming from a bad home, they're, there's no love there, they're maybe living with their grandparents. We need to be for them a, a second home away from home. A place that they feel safe and feel loved. We make the homeless at home in our homes. We don't let our guest rooms collect cobwebs and collect junk. Instead, no, we let our guest rooms be used. That's the kind of people that Isaiah is calling us to be. Bring the homeless into our house. Fourthly, he says, clothe the naked. Now, when I thought about this, I've been thinking all week, like, well, there's nobody naked running around around us that doesn't have clothes. Thank goodness. But the more and more that I thought about it, the more I started to see, well, you know, but there's a lot of people in our neighborhoods Maybe they don't have shoes. Or maybe they don't have good shoes. Maybe their toes are hanging out. They, they may only have one pair. Saying, go clothe them. Give them shoes. Maybe it's somebody who, when the winter comes, they don't have a coat. If we're the body of Christ, we're to give them a coat. Maybe it's somebody who they're poor, they don't have anything nice to wear, they're never going to be able to get a job because they don't have anything that they could wear to get a better job. Hey, we need to be people that go and find their need and give them what they need. Next he says, not only should we clothe the naked, but he says that we should not hide from the needs of others. He says, literally he says, don't hide from the needs of your own flesh. That is, don't hide from people who are human just like us. If we love people, if we love people, we cannot ignore their needs. We cannot ignore their needs. Finally, he says we should help the afflicted. Help the afflicted. And the afflicted that, that he's talking about are people, that, that word literally means to be bowed down. And the picture you get is that somebody who's just been beaten down by life. We are to go and meet the needs that they have. We're to go and meet the needs that they have. 
you know, we think about all these things, I'm sure there's objections that come up. I'm sure, you know, we, we always like to come up with objections and excuses to not follow what God tells us to. We might say things like, well, we would like to do that, but then we would become an enabler. We wouldn't really help the people in need. If we go and help them, then they're never really going to get out of need. We're just going to, you know, we're just going to help prolong their suffering. And to that I say, that's a conversation that we do need to have, yes, but that's a conversation that we have from the field, not from the sidelines. We're able to have that conversation when we're serving them, but when we sit on the sidelines not serving anybody and say, well, we would become an enabler, that's no longer an objection or a good question, that's an excuse. That becomes our excuse for not going and obeying what God says. Some of us may object and say, well, people are going to take advantage of us if we go and serve them. If we, if we serve people this way, people are just going to take advantage of our goodness. And my response to that is, let them take advantage of our goodness. Let them do it. You know, there, sometimes there are people in our community who they, the only time they come to church is they're going to come to church maybe when we do an eating meeting. They'll, they'll be here if there's going to be food in the back. And some people would say, well, that's just not right. They won't come into the church to go to a worship service, but they'll show up as soon as there's food in there. They're taking advantage of us, we say. I don't think God gave any qualifications when He said, feed the hungry. God tells us, feed the hungry. Don't worry about if they're taking advantage of you. Feed them. If there's people that show up and that's all they show up for, you know what I hope that we do? I hope that we welcome them and then we go and try to have conversations with them and we try to have them in our home for dinner. And build that relationship. Some of us might object and say, well, we don't have the money to do these kind of things, preacher. We don't have the resources. And that's where I would say, when it comes to helping people, if God is going to give us the need, if God is going to put people around us that are in need... Don't you think He's going to give us the resources to meet their need? I mean, He's already blessed us as a church so that we can do those things. And all of these objections at their core are just excuses for us not to go and serve people who are truly in need. They're just excuses. And what sets us apart as we go and do these things? There's a lot of good organizations in our country that seek to do these things. Non, non-religious. They're not gospel-centered. They're, they're out there trying to help people. What sets us apart as a church? And it's this. We do these things, these acts of service, ultimately because it reflects God's character. We're not in it just to help people as an end in itself. We're in it because it reflects God's very character. We do, mercy, we do mercy ministry not like the world does. We do it because it reflects the Gospel. It's a tangible way that we can serve people and show them the Gospel. And the Gospel is this. That we, make no mistake, we were the poor. We were the naked. We were the orphan. And God took us in. And God clothed us in His righteousness. The Gospel is that Jesus lived the life that we 
should have lived. That He died the death that we deserve. And He took us in. And so how can we say, after we've been taken in by God, that we're not going to tangibly have mercy on those around us and serve them? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We're so glad that you're here. And let me just tell you, this gospel is for you as well. This gospel is uh, for you to see your true status before God as a poor beggar and to realize that God welcomes you in because of what Christ has done for you. And we would encourage you to receive it this morning. There's a question that I keep wondering. And it's simply this. What are they going to say about us in 100 years? What are they going to say about us in 100 years? Our church this year will turn 155 years old. And if the Lord is gracious to give us another 100 years, what are they going to say about us when they look back on the Mount Carmel Baptist Church in 2018? What we were doing in 2018? What we were uh, about? Are they going to say, wow, you know, they had really good worship services. They're singing, the preaching, it was just all great. Are they going to say about us, you know, oh, they had tremendous growth. They had to build new buildings. When I first interviewed with the pastor search committee, I think probably one of the first few things in the first five minutes of the conversation, and we were asking, well, I asked, what is Mount Carmel all about? And one of the search committee members said this. He said, well, if we close the doors tomorrow, would we even be missed? we shut down everything tomorrow, would our community even miss us? Folks, I'm convinced that in a hundred years, the only thing that we will be known for, what it all hinges on, what we will be known for or not known for, is that church really made a difference. That church practically in people's lives in the community made a difference. They poured themselves out and served other people. And that church is hopefully what they will say about us. How do I know that? Because we know a lot about the early church. And here's something that that really stands out in the early church. This is 2,000 years ago, not just 100 years ago, but 2,000 years ago. This is what one historian says. He said, The willingness of Christians to care for others was put on dramatic display when two great plagues swept the empire, one beginning in the year 165 and the second in 251. Mortality rates climbed higher than 30%. Pagans tried to avoid all contact with the afflicted, often casting the still living into the gutters. Christians, on the other hand, nursed the sick, even when some believers died doing so. The results of these efforts were dramatic. Christian social services also were visible and valuable during the frequent natural and social disasters afflicting the Greco-Roman world. Earthquakes, famines, floods, riots, civil wars, invasions. To the cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity and hope. To the cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered immediate fellowship. To the cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. 
Christianity mitigated relations among social classes and at the very time when the gap between the rich and the poor was growing. It didn't preach that everyone could or should be socially or politically equal, but it did preach that all were equal in the eyes of God and that the more fortunate had a responsibility to help those in need. 2,000 years later, what stands out about the early churches, they served people. They poured themselves out. Finally, we see what happens if we were to live that kind of life as a church and as individuals. The last thing we see is that God blesses true religion, genuine religion that serves other people. And in starting in verse 8, He just goes in and, and starts showing us blessings. And I'm going to hit them quickly. Ultimately, though, it's the blessing of restoration and revival. First one that He tells us there in verse 8 is an empowered witness. He says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Our gospel witness, church, listen. We want to be on mission. We want the lost to be saved. The lost will see the light more clearly as we pour out our lives and serve them. The second thing is healing. He says, Your healing shall spring up speedily. And it literally refers to skin growing over a wound. He promises the, the blessing of protection. He says, Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Are you nervous about going out? You can hear God saying, Hey, I've got your back as you go. I've got your back. God promises us gladness. He says, Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And notice that it's not just about the light shining out as we serve people but also that light shines in. The darkness that we face sometimes, the gloominess, the depression that we face, when we're pouring ourselves out, something miraculous happens, and the light that we are shining out begins to shine into our own hearts. And our, our gloom is turned into gladness. Another blessing that He gives us is guidance. We always ask, well, what direction does the Lord want us to go in? And we hear God through this passage telling us, go serve others and you'll see. Go serve others and you'll see. He promises satisfaction. He says that it will dissatisfy your desires in the scorched places. If you're going through times of difficulty, if you're going through times of fire, if you're going through the scorched places, hear His promise. He will satisfy you as you serve other people. This is not when you're going through hard times. It's not a time to pull back. It's not a time to say, well, I'm going to not serve like I used to. That's a time to say, more than ever, I'm going to pour myself out. And as you do that, He will satisfy you. He will satisfy you. He promises strength. He says that He's going to make your bones strong. As we go and as we serve, He's going to give us strength to do it. He promises spiritual flourishing. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters don't fail. We're not going to be dry as we do this. You think, well, if we're pouring ourselves out and nobody's pouring into us, we're just going to be dry. No, He's saying, you do this, you serve others in this Gospel-centered way, you're not going to be dry. You're going to be flourishing. You're going to be to the point where other people come to you to also try to get this spiritual flourishing. People come to you to eat the fruit of the trees. And finally, in verse 12, God promises the blessing of restoration. He says, And your ancient ruins will be rebuilt, 
you'll raise up the foundations of many generations. You'll be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets. God promises His people that, hey, when you serve people in these ways, when you are consumed with pouring yourself out, He's going to bring restoration. Another word for that that we use today for restoration in, in the church world is revival. You want to experience revival? You want to experience renewal? Go and serve people. Go and pour yourself out. Ray Ortland says this about true revival. He says, true revival is not a private religious joy ride. Isn't that what we often make it? Revival's about us. That's what we normally say. He says, it's the power of a future better world enabling us to stop saying those people aren't my responsibility. It gets us busy. Revival gets us busy doing what we can about poverty, illiteracy, slavery, abortion, political manipulation, people being treated like animals, people going to an eternal hell. We don't need three years in seminary to get the motivation to obey God like this. Three days in a third world country will do that for us, or only three seconds in hell. We're to serve others. And God promises ultimately that He will restore us. That He will bring revival. That our mission will be effective as we go. To summarize the blessings here, we are going to receive God's blessings as we pour ourselves out. Don't just take Isaiah's word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. Jesus said, when you have a banquet, invite the poor. Invite the crippled. Invite the lame. Invite the blind. And you'll be blessed. Paul himself quotes Jesus and says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the question I have for you today is, do you feel empty? Do you feel empty? feel like you've got nothing left to give? Pour yourself out. And you'll find that you will be filled. Do you feel dry? Give others a drink from the well. Do you feel depressed? Gloomy? Serve the person who's in need. We see in this text that God despises our empty religion. Serves Him just from the outside but not from the inside. A religion that doesn't serve other people. True religion serves other people in need. We saw six ways that we do that. And finally, God blesses genuine religion that serves other people. God will bless us if we serve in this way. So we want to be a group of people this morning that respond to God's Word. And maybe, like I said earlier, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, for you, you need to see that God doesn't just meet physical needs. He's not just about social justice, but He's also trying to meet the greatest need that you have. You are a sinner and you don't know God. You're missing the relationship with God that will bring you eternal satisfaction. And God invites you into His family. He invites you to come and receive. To come and eat at His table. 
And so this morning, the question for you is, will you come and eat at His table? Will you come and receive this Gospel? And I urge you to do that. It is for everybody. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, the invitation for us is to stop talking about living on mission. Stop talking. But to get out of our comfort zone and pour ourselves out serving those in need. Sharing the Gospel as we go. I want to close this morning with the words of Jesus Himself. When speaking of final judgment and the transformation that, that He has in His followers to serve the poor, to serve the needy, this is what He says. He says, Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why does He welcome them in? Why at the end will He say to, to believers, Come on in? He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the people say, well, Lord, when did we do any of that to you? And then Jesus answers them. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As we serve other people, we are serving none other than our very Master. Our Master who is a father to the fatherless. A protector of widows. Who is near to the brokenhearted, Who is on the side of the oppressed. So let's get out of these walls and let's join God on our mission as we spread the Gospel by serving people with acts of compassion. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And God, I don't know about anybody else here, but I am challenged by it. Because I know that there's so much more that I can do to serve other people. There's so much more that we can do to serve other people. Lord, I pray that You would make us a church, a body. And not just a church, but individuals who make up the church who are very passionate about being known for our service to others. Help us, Lord, to surrender all to You. To pour ourselves out into the mission. To do the uncomfortable things. To feed the hungry. To clothe the naked. To free the one who is oppressed. To lift up the afflicted. And God, as we do that, I pray that we would see a harvest. I pray that as we go and serve, Lord, that we would not shrink back from sharing the Gospel. And that many people would be brought into Your kingdom. That many people would believe for the very first time because they see how much we love them. And through our love, they see the love of their Heavenly Father. We pray it in Jesus' name.